Thank you very much. And welcome uh, to Peter Williams. Thank Go you, ahead. Peter. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, you don't have to. So you might regret that later. That's, uh, that's faith, that is. Uh, although um, I would be very keen to point out that I, I think one of the key things about the new atheism, and you'll see I quote various new atheists as we go through, is this whole thing of their misunderstanding of what faith is. Oh, there we go. I've come live as well up there. Hello. Um, the new atheists think that faith automatically means blind faith, that those are just the same thing. And I would say uh, no, certainly not according to the biblical tradition of what faith is. Faith uh, is very much not meant to be blind faith at all, uh, but can be a well-grounded, uh, well-evidenced trust in God, trust in Jesus. I think trust is a much better contemporary translation of the word that we translate as faith in the Bible. Uh, the same words in the Bible can also mean to believe or to be convinced. And this connotation of blind faith that the New Atheists have done such a good marketing job on, unfortunately, uh, means I tend to avoid talking about faith and talk about trust. And it should be evident that you can have good reasons for trust. And indeed, the earliest preaching of the church uh, if you look at what the earliest disciples did when they were trying to spread the gospel message about Jesus, they went around saying, you should believe this because we have seen him risen from the dead. We are the eyewitnesses. We are giving you uh, access to God's testimony uh, upon Jesus' uh, ministry, his life, death, uh, and resurrection. And of course, we have uh, access to that truth in a number of ways today. I say we could have access to the truth of Christ through our religious experience. But we can also have access uh, to Christ through uh, the written uh, witness and testimony of those who knew him and knew people who knew him in the first century. Um, I've done my best to slightly rearrange my PowerPoint around the pillar. <laughs> which I didn't quite realise was going to be there, uh, but you might have to bear with me occasionally. I'll probably read out a few more of the quotes than I would normally necessarily do and so on, um, but I'm sure we'll cope. And it's, anyway, you've got uh, some of the charts and things uh, in this wonderful little book that Kevin uh, has produced for us. So anyway, the historical reliability of the four Gospels. The four Gospels that we have in the New Testament are the only first-century Gospels. Uh, oftentimes we'll get atheists and sceptics of various sorts mentioning, oh, there were a whole load of different Gospels and uh, the church basically randomly chose those that happened to suit them. Not true. They had very good reasons for picking the ones that they did, uh, primarily because the ones they picked were the only first century sources of information about Jesus, whereas uh, other so-called Gospels, some of which don't even contain narrative, are just collections of sayings like the Gospel of Thomas and so on, uh, come from a uh, much later time period uh, in the third, fourth uh, centuries and so on. Some of you might recognise this chap. Some of you might not. I'll tell you who he is in a moment. He's a New Testament scholar from America. And he says, we have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Bart Ehrman. Now, those of you who've heard of Bart Ehrman will know that he's an agnostic, uh, quite sceptical 
New Testament scholar from America. He's written a number of best-selling books um, that, uh, to put a particular spin on some of the uh, information about Jesus, um, and sometimes you catch him in a more reflective scholarly mode, uh, and you think, is this the same person saying the same things? Um, but yes, indeed it is. Uh, the French neo-atheist or neo-atheist Michel Onfray um, mistakenly asserts that there are only two or three vague references to Jesus in ancient texts outside the Bible. I'm going to spend most of this morning talking about inside the Bible, but I thought I'd just do a quick preface about outside the Bible because you'll hear this sort of thing going around, floating around on the internet as well. Um, much better source of information about this might be Gary R. Habermas's book, The Historical Jesus. You might have noticed on the table, one of the free papers is by Gary Habermas. Uh, it's good to look up his website and so on. He mentions that ancient secular, secular sources mention a lot of aspects of Jesus' life, corroborating the picture in the New Testament, and mentions historians like Tacitus, Suetonius, Thallus, Jewish sources like Josephus and the Talmud, uh, Roman government officials like Pliny the, Lung, the Younger, uh, the Roman uh, Caesar Trajan and Hadrian describe various early Christian beliefs. Um, satirist Lucian and Syrian uh, Mara Bar Serpian, etc., etc. So you get the idea. There's more than two or three. There's, there's quite a few. And actually, Habermas points out that between just looking at the secular sources about Jesus from early on, you can piece together an outline of the life of Jesus as described in the Gospels and they're commensurate uh, with one another. All of these on the list here are things that you would know about Jesus just from looking at secular sources, pagan, Greek, Roman, Jewish sources that are not Jewish Christian sources. Anyway, the four Gospels as we have in the New Testament, uh, this is the Illustration, the symbolic, symbolic representation of the four Gospels from the Book of Kells. They're the only first century biographies of Jesus. And Professor Richard Bockham, uh, author of wonderful books like Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, says that the best way of categorizing the Gospels as literature, there's been a, a long debate uh, in New Testament studies over what kind of literature is this. He says it's to see them as biographies. This is the sort of consensus nowadays. Ancient types of biography, rather than modern types, don't, for example, spend a lot of time trying to psychoanalyze Jesus or telling us about his early childhood, um, but they do what ancient biographies did. And he says, more precisely, biographies of a contemporary person based as such biographies were expected to be. This was the, the cultural expectation that they would be based on eyewitness testimony. I've got a little video uh, clip of Bochum uh, reiterating this point. Bochum's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is a very uh, interesting uh, scholarly look at those signs of eyewitness testimony that, that first century readers would have been alert to in terms of the cultural practices of writing history uh, in the day. You might have heard of this chap, Richard Dawkins. Uh, all over the telly once again on more four. Uh, the fact that something is written down, he says, is persuasive to people not used to asking questions like who wrote it and when. Of course, he has uh, Christian believers in the biblical stories very firmly in mind, one imagines here. Well, let us uh, structure our 
meeting this morning by asking precisely that kind of very obvious evidential question. I'm going to present to you what I call the four links in the chain of testimony. If you're going to base your knowledge of an event on testimony about it, I think there's basically four links between the event and your knowledge of it that you would want to ask some pretty standard historical questions of. It's the link between the reported events themselves and the source of purported information about that event. The link between that source of information about the event and their writing down their testimony about it. Link three is the link between their writing it down, their testimony, the original written document, what's called the autograph, and the surviving copies that we have of that autograph. For ancient texts, we, we rarely, if ever, have the original document. What we tend to have are uh, various copies of the original document or copies of copies of the original document. And the final link is the link between that autograph and the text that we can reconstruct today, how accurately can we reconstruct that autographic text on the basis of the surviving copies of that autograph. So you see that that brings us from the event through the chain of testimony to us. And there are very obvious questions that one would want to ask about that chain of testimony. I'll look at the first two, and then we'll probably have some Q&A time before moving on to the the second two, because that sort of breaks down uh, into the events and and the reporting of them, and then our ability to access accurately those reports. There are actually four overlapping historical stages, just to make it a little bit more complicated. Those first two links uh, themselves you could subdivide into a number of overlapping stages Um, The witnesses to the historical Jesus, the people who actually saw and heard and touched him. And then what's called the period of oral history, when the teaching of the stories about Jesus were preserved in the the oral memory of the eyewitnesses uh, and of the wider Christian community. The period of writing down information about Jesus rather than just memorizing Uh, Memory, of course, was a much bigger facet of of ancient culture than it is nowadays, where we farm out our memory to Wikipedia and Google. And uh, the actual writing of the Gospels, because as we'll see, the Gospels tend to draw on a number of different sources, some of which scholars think are written sources. But these uh, stages uh, don't just neatly happen one after another. They uh, overlap with one another. You can see them, actually, in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Uh, where Luke is very clear that he's uh, writing history as the ancients understood it. Uh, He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account, stage three, of the things that have been fulfilled among us, stage one. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, those who memorized and told their experiences, stage two. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, uh, and the word there, investigated, comes from the same Greek root as our word history, uh, investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Stage four, drawing on the sources of information 
to compose a completed gospel. Well, let's look at ground zero there. Who, who wrote these gospels? Richard Dawkins says that nobody knows who the four evangelists were, but they almost certainly never met Jesus. How can he be almost certain that these people never met Jesus if he doesn't know who they were? It's quite an interesting conundrum. But still, um, Richard Dawkins is a zoologist by training, whereas Mark D. Roberts is a New Testament scholar, uh, and he says that in recent years, many have come to believe that the first and fourth Gospels reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. Both Matthew and John... Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus, as it were, but they, their memory, their authority, stand behind the Gospels that bear their names. Luke Timothy, uh, uh, Timothy Paul Jones, in his book Misquoting Truth, says the best evidence that we possess suggests that the sources for the four Gospels were a tax collector named Matthew, Simon Peter's translator, Mark, the physician, Luke, and a fisherman named John. And there are some interesting arguments that go into this territory. Christians probably wouldn't attribute Gospels to such peripheral characters as Mark, or Luke, or even Matthew, actually, given his collaboration tax collector background, If they didn't write them, why would you make that up if it wasn't true? Uh, Mark and Luke, after all, weren't among Jesus' 12 apostles. If you're making up the document, you want to make it sound authentic, um, wouldn't you make up that you were one of the apostles, at least? And though an apostle, Matthew, is best known for his unscrupulous past as a tax collector, not uh, not the one you'd perhaps pick on to write the gospel that's particularly aimed at explaining Jesus to the Jewish audience as Matthew's Gospel clearly is. (laughs) By contrast with the canonical Gospels, the Gospels in the New Testament, the later 2nd through 5th century apocryphal Gospels that I mentioned at the beginning uh, are all falsely ascribed to highly reputable, influential early Christians. So you get things like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, Although you have the, the whole doubting Thomas thing, but you know clearly he's a, an eyewitness, uh, not like Mark or Luke. So they try and, and make them appear authoritative and creditable in these uh, Gnostic and apocryphal Gospels. Um, and that sort of fits with this theory that, well, you wouldn't make up these uh, characters as, the, as the, the authority behind these Gospels if you were making things up. And when people did make things up, they didn't do that. So that fits. So therefore, I think a good case case can still be made for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the authors of the Gospels. Um, But that's not the key crucial point, so much as the fact that these Gospels go back to the community of people in the first century who uh, knew people who knew Jesus or who knew Jesus themselves, and that there is signs in the text, as Bochum points out, that various traditions in those Gospels come from those 
eyewitnesses and servants of the word who memorised those particular incidents that they were uh, most directly in contact with and so on. When were the Gospels written? I mean, this is a key question. How long after the, the actual events does the report, the writing down of these Gospels come from? Is it so long afterwards that everybody's forgotten about it? Is it so long afterwards that there aren't any eyewitnesses alive anymore who could contradict you? Um, are you writing six feet above contradiction or not? Well, here's a, a table that shows the difference between the sort of majority, what we might call conservative datings of the, the Gospels and the sort of liberal datings. And even here, you can see there's only a sort of 20 to 30 year difference between the conservative and liberal datings, and even the liberal datings are clearly within the first century and within the lifetime uh, of eyewitnesses. Um, I would argue and do at some length in the book for the uh, rather earlier end of the conservative datings, uh, except for um, John, which is very difficult, I think, to pin down. When you look at extra-biblical texts, you can see some of the early church fathers, some of the sort of second-generation Christians, um, quoting from the Gospels, which sort of must have existed to be quoted. So Polycarp refers to all the four Gospels and Acts, writing in about AD 110. Ignatius refers to all four Gospels and Acts, writing in AD 108. Clement, writing to Corinth in about AD 96, quotes from all three of the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Older views that place John uh, into the second century, this is a sort of 19th century uh, view of the matter, have completely been discarded with the discovery of the John Rylands fragment uh, of John's Gospel, uh, which is probably already at one copying stage removed from the original, but dates from early, early in the second century. Uh, thus pushing, pushing the date of the original into the first century. So all historians, says William Lane Craig, agree that the Gospels were written down and circulated during the first generation after the event. And the debate between the sort of liberal and conservative datings is only, well, how close exactly? But they all agree that they're written down and circulated during the first generation after the event. Um, Here's a little uh, video clip again, to make sure we've got some noise. This is a Dr. Mike Lacona, uh, author of a doorstop of a book on the resurrection, if you're interested in that subject. Um, but here's him very briefly on the uh, typical datings of the Gospels. Now, if you want to think about some of the reasons for pushing the Gospel writing dates earlier than that sort of 65 onwards... You might mention the fact that the book of Acts, which is written by Luke and is clearly the sequel uh, to Luke's gospel, ends with St. Paul in prison, uh, which was about AD 62. It doesn't mention anything about Paul's trial or his death, and he's a pretty major character in the book. It doesn't mention anything about the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, which we know happened in AD 62. Uh, it doesn't mention anything about the destruction of Jerusalem, at the hands of the Romans, in AD 70. Um, all pretty big historical events, crucially connected with um, the people that Luke is talking, is writing about, or with the, the destruction of the temple 
You might have thought Christians would take this as, as a sign of, you know, well, of course, the church is the temple of God now, and the sacrificial system, it, that's all gone. You know, Christ is the body. But none of that gets mentioned. So maybe that's an indication that Luke's gospel shouldn't be uh, dated quite that late. It shouldn't be dated later than its sequel, obviously. And given that Luke was written after Matthew, and Matthew written after Mark, as most scholars think, you'd have to conclude that the synoptic gospels, at least, were all written within 30 years of the death of Jesus. I'm not going to go into the tentative datings or arguments that I would. That's a bit more detailed, but you can read that in my book if you like. Um, I would basically say the thing to note here is there can be a period over which a gospel is written. I think, for example, Mark's gospel um, may have been begun by Mark in about AD 44 and completed and published by AD 48 or 49. It went through a number of stages where he had opportunities to get together with Peter and say to Peter, is this all right to include some outside sources to beef up certain sections and so on. So these things, it's not like when I write, sit down and write a book, I, spend to, I tend to sort of write it in a, in a six-month period or a year period. Um, but maybe there are indications that these things happened over a slightly longer period and the question of when did they start writing it and when did they finish writing it don't have the same answer. Um, but I'd say myself, Mark was published by 49, Matthew, mid-50s, early 60s, Luke, by AD 62, certainly. John, I think, is a lot harder to pin down. There's arguments both ways for saying, well, it's earlier than AD 70 or towards the end of the century. You've um, got a, in your workbooks on the back page a number of charts. Because I like putting up little graphical representations of some of this data it makes it much more accessible I think and you've got there the chart the average gap between the events and the report and this is what this chart of data here is looking at comparing the New Testament Gospels to lots of standard other ancient works of literature and history Um, well history (laughs) Pliny's letters Tacitus's annals, Herodotus's history, Josephus, etc. And saying, okay, what are they writing about? How long after are they writing about it? And, and over what sort of time period are they covering? How long do they take to get a lot of data? And you can work out some statistical averages. In the ancient world, when you're looking at ancient history, how long after the event are people generally reporting the event? And then put it as a bar chart here, and you can see... Uh, Plutarch is sort of writing on average about 300 years after the event. And Josephus, on average, is writing sort of 160-ish. Uh, down to Tacitus, he's writing sort of 60 years after. Then we get to John at the end of the century, so longest after. Luke, Matthew, Mark. And there are a couple. Pliny is the earliest here, but you can see that the New Testament sits in the lower end, very firmly in the lower end, of the average of the gap between the events that are being reported and actually writing down those reports. So the take-home message there is, if you wanted to be sceptical about the contents of the Gospels because you wanted to say, oh, they were written too far, too long after the events that they're reporting, 
to be accurate. Well, to be fair, you'd then have to chuck out everything at the top end of this chart as inaccurate ancient history as well, for the same reason, because they're obviously much worse than the New Testament. And of course, I mentioned a little bit earlier that the Gospels themselves tend to draw on a number of different sources, some of which scholars hypothesize are probably written sources. There are indeed five independent sources behind the Gospels that scholars will normally mention. And since these have to predate the Gospels, that means they must be at least circa 30 to 60. Um, Q... It's a, it comes from the German quell, which is, means source, uh, is the material that's common to Matthew and Luke's gospel. If you read them side by side, you see they have a lot of material in common, and it's thought that that material is a, is a previous source cue of information that stands behind Matthew and Luke that they incorporated into their gospels. M is material that's unique to Matthew's gospel. L, material unique to Luke's gospel. There's a pre-Mark and Passion source, many scholars think, that uh, Mark puts at the end of his gospel when you have all these little units in Mark of stories, and then suddenly you, you come to a long stretch of narrative about the Passion. And it's uh, thought by many that that long stretch of Passion narrative uh, depends on an, an, uh, a pre-existing source that predates Mark's gospel. And that John's gospel also draws on uh, what's called a signs source, a source that talks about the miracles of Jesus that John drew on. And of course those sources then have to predate the formation of those gospels. Um, I would say that the four gospels provide us access to at least five independent sources of information about Jesus and it's key that they're independent sources that take us back to the time of written sources in oral history within 20 years of Jesus. Paul Barnett notes that Q texts are cited or echoed in letters of Paul in the mid-50s. If Paul is quoting elements that ended up in the Gospels uh, and he's quoting them in the mid-50s and he's quoting them, so they pre-exist even quoting them, uh, Dale Allison concludes that Paul knew material for Mark, material common to Luke and Matthew, that's Q, material unique to Luke, L, and perhaps material unique, unique to Matthew. So there are signs in the letters, in the New Testament letters, which predate the Gospels uh, on most datings, that they knew about these sources that also ended up in the Gospels. So it's interesting to see that tie up between the letters and the Gospels and the sources that they both draw upon. So at least elements of Mark and Q and L and maybe M existed within 20 years of the historical Jesus. And as Bochum points out, many of the named characters in those stories, they're named in the stories because they're the eyewitnesses. They didn't just originate those traditions to which their names are attached, but continued to tell those stories as the, the guarantors of those traditions within the community. They are the sort of keeper of that information. Um, it's a bit like the sci-fi novel Fahrenheit 451, where people become the books because they've memorised them. If you've seen uh, the film, the French film of Fahrenheit 451, uh, memory and oral tradition and being the keeper of those traditions in it, that are important to the community 
as I say, much more um, part of the culture back then in the days before Wikipedia. Indeed, it's not really true in technical terms to say that the Gospels are based on oral traditions. That oral tradition is technically characterised by the oral transmission of information over a generation. Rather, we're talking about contemporary eyewitness oral history. It's like those oral history documentaries on the, on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, or Times Past Channel, or whatever. So whoever they were and whenever they wrote, we've got good reason to accept that the gospel authors were in a position to transmit reliable reports about Jesus from eyewitnesses, uh, argued Boyd and Eddy. And one more point on this section, and then we'll have a little brief stop for, for questions. Paul Copan makes a number of quite useful points in this quote, I think. He says, given the importance of memorization and oral tradition in first century Palestine... Given the practice of occasionally writing down and preserving the teaching of rabbis by their disciples, they did memorise it, but also it was traditional to make notes. Three, given the fact that the vast majority of Jesus' teaching was poetic in form, he deliberately put it in a form that's easy to memorise. Fourth, given the importance and revered status of religious traditions in that culture, And given the presence of uh, apostolic authority in Jerusalem to ensure the accurate transmission of that tradition, we've got good reason to believe that the material in the Gospels was carefully and correctly set down. So that gives us a coverage of links one and two. How do we get from the events themselves to the actual written reports of those events? And showing that in terms of ancient history... It's clear that they're trying to do history. That meant drawing on eyewitnesses, drawing on sources. Um, Those sources predate the Gospels themselves, however you date them. Uh, And given the cultural situation and so on, we've got good reason for thinking um, that that information goes back to people who were in a position to know what they were talking about. Uh, And they would have been concerned to pass on that information accurately And there are signs in the manner of that teaching, the the type of culture it was, the sources that are being drawn upon, the right people in the right place at the right time, that they would have been able uh, to do that, at least in a comparable way to other ancient history. So we'll open up for sort of uh, five, ten minutes of questions on those first links. The second section is shorter than the first section. Uh, but let's pause there to look at that links one and two and Kevin's got a microphone for you (laughs) good morning yes can you make any comments about Jewish debunking of Jesus that may have started back then or when it started and Sure, yes. Yeah. So, okay, this is just a repeat for the tape. This is a um, question about the Jewish sources. I mentioned the Talmud uh, as a secular source for Jesus, or well, non Christian source, and about the Jewish de- attempts to debunk the, the Jesus story. I think we get signs of that starting in the Gospels with the whole story about the empty tomb and the back and forth that's reflected in the Gospels about 
the story the Christians were telling about the empty tomb and the story the Jews were telling about the empty tomb. And the Jews seem to have told the story, yes, the tomb was empty because the disciples came and stole the body. And the Christian response to that accusation was, oh yes, but there was a tomb, there was a guard on the tomb, so how could we have stolen the body? And so on. Now, whatever you make of that backwards and forwards, the interesting point that it points to underneath it is a joint recognition that the tomb was empty. It's not that the Jewish response to the gospel proclamation was, what are you talking about? No, the tomb has still got a body in it. Or, uh, what are you talking about? Nobody knows where he was buried. Uh, it was, well, yes, the tomb is empty, but, but there's an explanation for that that's not the Christian one. Uh, and that's... Uh, an indication of, of the, the, the truth of the fact of the empty tomb that would come under the heading of, of, of enemy attestation uh, in terms of sort of criteria that people use in historical studies to point to the truth of some bit of a, a text. Enemy attestation. Um, you know, whether or not the Jews were right about the reason for the tomb being empty, the whole debate hinges on the acknowledgement that it was empty. Um, so that's an interesting sign. And also, mentioning the Talmud, um, the accusation against Jesus, which again reflects something you see in the Gospels, is that Jesus worked miracles, or did wonderful things, but not by the power of God. So uh, the Talmud says that, uh, um, that he um, led Israel astray by sorcery. It's not he pretended to do things, or people said he did, but he didn't. Or it's yes, he did do these mysterious things, but it was sorcery. It was evil, and you get that reflected in the Gospels when they, they say it's, it's by the power of Beelzebub that you drive out these demons. They're not saying no, you're not doing it. They're saying you're doing it, but you're not on God's side. Um, so again, enemy attestation to the miracle working of Jesus from that source. So those are two. Interesting things that spring to mind. Thank you. Do you think of the idea that um, some scholars think that Matthew may have been the first people? Yes, this is a, there's a detailed and still ongoing debate about which order the Gospels are written in. And I've presented the sort of majority view of the ordering. And, you know, uh, I'm a philosopher rather than a New Testament scholar, but I've read a lot into it. Um, personally, I, I, I think that the, the Markan priority looks good, but there are, you know, very well-credentialed scholars of various um, um, positions, theistic and, and not, and so on, who would argue for Matthew being first. And a lot of this turns on interpreting comments from the early church fathers about the composition of the Gospels and I think I'm quite drawn to the theory that it was Matthew who wrote Q the Q source um, as a tax collector he would have known shorthand, he was one of the disciples um, maybe Matthew made notes in Hebrew which is what one of the Church Fathers refers to Matthew writing first in Hebrew, or in the Hebrew style. It's 
ambiguous. Um, and then that key source becomes a large basis for Matthew's gospel, whether that, the rest of it was done by Matthew or by others. And it got called Matthew because Matthew was the source behind the, the core of it. Um, so that's a, a way of explaining what some of the early church fathers says about Matthew wrote first uh, and I quite like Paul this is really drawing, drawing on um, ancient historian called Paul Barnett here he's wrote some very good books on the historical Jesus who says therefore you know he thinks yes Matthew wrote first but he wasn't the first gospel writer because, because in, in your view because question in your view would you say that uh, he then produced a polished version for the end of his life? Well, that's certainly a possibility. It, it, there's, it's an area where there's not a great deal of data to go on. You're really trying to... Well, we say that the cue is the first rough jottings that were passed around amongst friends. Yeah, it... it... And disciples in the community mm. at the point, hey guys, this is going big. Yes. Let's, let's produce a published copy. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, and particularly, particularly if, if Matthews made these notes about Jesus' teachings, and then Mark comes along yeah. and publishes a gospel in 49, as hey, I think. He's <laughs> like, well, you weren't even an eyewitness. No, mate, right, get on, I'll finish that job. Or those who knew Matthew saying, well, wait, hang on, we've got a good source here, that's a good idea let's do that as well uh, and that takes, takes care of the, the, the arguments that most scholars follow for saying Mark is the first gospel published but also the comments from the early church fathers saying Matthew wrote first in Hebrew but of course Matthew's gospel is in Greek um, which is why some people say oh is it the Hebrew style or is it in Hebrew and so on um, so there are you know it's, I don't think any of these are knockdown arguments for it. Um, this is very much a territory where you're, where you're looking for the balance of probabilities and just trying to sort of fit little points of data into the best sort of theory to take it all into account that you can. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm afraid I can't give you off the top of my head sources for that um, I'm drawing upon the expertise of New Testament scholars that I've read who've said that that is the case um, so I'd have to follow that through um, that's an argument from, from authority on my part <laughs> yeah Peter this is brilliant but very helpful um, to try and understand how the gospel is put together what does this do to our doctrine of inspiration how do we mm. How do we retain the fundamental significance that this is the word of God? Yeah, sure. This is a good question um, that would deserve a longer answer than I can give here. Uh, this is not, not an entire cop-out, so I will try and address it. But I will point out, I've got a podcast channel, uh, which you can find through the Demaris Trust or on iTunes, Peter S. Williams, that's just what it's called. Um, and I gave a talk at an apologetics group at my church in Southampton um, a couple of terms ago that addressed the issue of the inspiration authority and uh, inerrancy of scripture and what we meant by that um, so I, I've 
elsewhere I've got material that you can access that, that, that addresses those particularly. So what I'm arguing in terms of here, the history and the approach I take in the book is to say, set aside any questions or notions about whether or not this is an inspired text. I think that it is. I think there's a, a coherent meaning that can be given to the, the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. Um, but it's quite, uh, it gets quite nuanced because, and, you know, here's a controversial point, you have to take into account the fact that the Bible contains false statements. And you have to have a doctrine of inerrancy that makes coherent sense given the fact that clearly the Bible and the Gospels contain false statements. Um, so, first of all, it quotes um, people who lie. So there, there are false statements in there because you know, it says like Satan says things in there, and it's not true, and so on. Um, if you compare the gospel stories, say so compare the gospel stories of uh, Peter's denial. Okay. Now, lots of people will argue, oh, there, there's contradictions between the gospels and so on. And I think a lot, a lot of that stuff is very easily harmonisable uh, when you think it through a little bit. But it's very clear that we don't have the precise words, for example, that Peter used to deny Christ on those three occasions in all of the Gospels. All of the Gospels report that he denied knowing Jesus, but they all report him using slightly different words. And it becomes very implausible to think that, well, maybe he he said a lot of sentences all of which denied Christ, and, and the different gospel reports of it picked on different sentences that he used on that occasion. So, um, uh, you know, they report him saying things like, no, I didn't know the man, or um, uh, I never knew him, or um, no, you are mistaken, I, I knew him not, or whatever. You know, what did he say? No, I never knew man, no, you're mistaken, no, I never knew, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, he denied Christ. <laughs> What they're telling us when they say in the gospel those words is, I think, is conveying accurately the information that he denied Christ. Is it giving us a word-for-word, blow-by-blow account? Well, no. First of all, he probably didn't say it in Greek, so we've got a translation anyway. (laughs) In Aramaic. Um, So it becomes quite an interesting task in philosophical theology to actually nuance your, your theory of inerrancy an inspiration but what I'm really doing in the book is setting aside that whole discussion and saying ignore that take the gospels as what they undeniably are ancient historical documents purely on the same grounds as you would use for judging any ancient historical documents testimony about something how well does the New Testament pass exactly the same tests if you treat it fairly Um, And as we're saying, the answer is very well. Um, Very well indeed. It's then a further question to to say, are these inspired, inerrant, etc.? Exactly what does that mean? What's my theology of that? But on the basis of thinking that these are historically reliable documents that give us access to good testimony about Jesus... You could come, and believe, come to believe that Jesus is who Christians think he was and put your faith in him on good grounds. And then notice that Christians have this theology about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. And what does that mean? And go through that whole... <laughs> you don't have to solve those riddles before you can think about trusting Jesus on the basis of that testimony. 
that the disciples give about him. So that's why I try and separate those issues out. But if you want to pursue the doctrine of inerrancy and some of the philosophical conundrums around that more, go to my podcast channel. That's a good plug. (laughs) Any more? Oh, yes. Um, I'm always been interested to find out why uh, David Beckham's autobiography is about 500 pages, probably, not that I've read it. Why is it possible so short? Yes. Why? Why? Lots of other interesting people. Yeah, well, this is a fascinating difference between ancient biography and modern biography as well. Ancient biographies were, A, concerned to, to make, um, often to make moral points to the audience, to be improving works of literature, as it were, by, by pointing out particular incidences and episodes in an important character's life. Um, and hence, we, we have the, the, the very important in those terms, incidents and teaching and actions of Jesus, but we don't get, as we would expect in a modern biography, we don't get loads of stuff about, you know, he, he grew up in Nazareth and it was a hard life and, and then he learned carpentry with his dad and blah, 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 and did all that. And we get loads of stuff about childhood and so on, partly because we moderns are, are we have this sort of post-psychoanalyst uh, view of personal biography, that people are shaped by their life experiences and we're interested to see what were those circumstances, what are the things that shaped him as a young man that then you know, shaped the trajectory of his life and so on and if he came from poverty to, to that great position of, of superstardom or whatever then maybe I can as well and <laughs> um, we're looking at biography in a very different way in modern eyes than the ancients looked at biography but the overlap is that you're talking about um, historical details of a historical personage's actual life, and you're trying to do that accurately. Um, but they had a slightly different uh, intent and focus, and they didn't have this sort of post-Freudian psychoanalyst kind of view of, of people. And you read lots of biographies today, and you kind of see clearly it's all about those life influences and the, the psychology of the individual rather than knowing the individual through what they say and what they do. It's trying to sort of get under the skin and, and say, well, this is probably why he behaved like that, because you know, when he was nine years old, he was frightened by a dog and oh, so on. And the ancients just didn't sort of think in that way. Uh, and also, papyrus is very expensive. <laughs> so you want to keep your biography as short as possible. It keeps the publishing costs down. Uh, you know, and copying. You can't just put it on the photocopier. <laughs> You know, you have to have to pay someone to write it out, word, letter by letter. So, very expensive. You usually needed some sort of rich patron to sponsor your publication. Um, my dear Theophilus, etc. Oh, we have another one. Do we have sources that attest the miracles of Jesus outside of the Bible? Yes. You're going to want to know what they are, aren't you? Uh, I've mentioned the Talmud about about leading us through sorcery. Um, I've actually got a slide. Yeah, there's some pagan sources uh, as well. Um, Bear with me a moment. This will be our last question, but it will bear... um, answering this with a specific answer 
from a slide from tonight that's got the data on it. Bring up. Yeah. Uh, so in Josephus, uh, he mentioned at this time they repeat Jesus a wise man for he was a doer of startling deeds. Um, again, it's a matter of translation here, but the indication is sort of wonderful deeds or miraculous or this sort of cluster of terminology. Um, here's the quote from the Babylonian Talmud. He practiced sorcery, enticed and led Israel astray. So they uh, hanged him on the eve of the Passover. And yes, they are Celsus. In AD 180, the pagan philosopher Celsus wrote that it was by magic that he, Jesus, was able to do the miracles which he appears to have done. Um, so there's three uh, Jewish and non-Jewish uh, sources outside the Bible. There we go. Good specific question, worth giving a specific answer to. Okay, let us get back to the four Gospels so we get our fluid rebalance on time. Right. Okay, so now we're moving on to uh, link three and then link four in our chain of testimony. New atheist Sam Harris. This rather brooding photo of him. Um, He complains about the New Testament being evidenced by discrepant and fragmentary copies of copies of copies of ancient Greek manuscripts. On the one hand, you could say, oh, oh dear, that doesn't sound very good, does it? On the other hand, you could say, oh, wow, we better chuck out all of ancient history then, because that's basically all we ever have (laughs) for ancient history, and yet many universities seem to keep those departments open for some reason. Um, And actually, he's probably painting with too dark a brush there when it comes to the New Testament documents. Another non-Christian, Anthony Flew, of course, was a famous atheist for many, many, many years, and then in 2004 uh, proclaimed that he'd come to believe in a God, but he hadn't become to believe in the Christian God. He wasn't a Christian, but he was now a theist. Uh, In a debate... uh, said this, the textual authority, the earliness and the number of manuscripts for most of the Christian documents is unusually great. That's very good authority for the accuracy of the text that is provided in translation in the New Testament. So he had a somewhat different view of the matter than Sam Harris. Norman Geisler puts some of the data like this. He says, the average time span, and I'll have a graph on this in a moment, uh, the average time span between the original, the autograph, and the earliest copy of other ancient texts is a 1,000 years on average. a 1,000 years. However, the New Testament has at least one fragment within one generation of its composition. Whole books appear within 100 years of the original. Most of the New Testament within 200 years, and the entire New Testament within 275 to 300 years from the date of its completion, compared to an average gap of 1,000 years. So again, if you want to chuck out 
the reliability of the, the New Testament text and say, look, we just, we don't really know what they originally wrote. They might have wrote something that was accurate, but we don't have access to it because it's too long. All we've got are these copies of copies of... No, we've got from 300 years back to within a generation copies of decreasing size as you go backwards in time, unsurprisingly, compared to an average gap gap of a thousand years for the rest of ancient history. Here's a few examples. We've got complete copies of all the Gospels from around AD 325, 350-ish, like Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican. Uh, This showing here is Codex Sinaiticus, Codex uh, Epaphrimi Rescriptus, etc. These different codexes, and that means books, when we got that late in history, they went from scrolls to actually leaf books, as you see here. And by then, we've got various different uh, 4th century, early 4th century copies of the whole uh, Gospels. You've got major portions of all four Gospels and Acts from about AD 250 in things like the Chester Beatty papyri here. We've got several pages of Luke and John in the Bodmer papyri from AD 200. This is that Ryland's papyrus fragment we mentioned. This is the little bit of John's Gospel dating from, well, early in the second century. It's a little hard to put precise dates on here, and you tend to get slightly different numbers depending on who you read. But very early, first couple of decades or so of the second century. It's fascinating, isn't it, how when you get a tiny little scrap of an ancient manuscript that actually bears witness to more than the text that's on the scrap. Because the way in which you can identify where that text is from by matching it to later manuscripts fits so exactly like a key into a lock that it's like the key says, yes, this is the lock that I was designed for. These fragmentary bits of manuscripts say, yes, this is the story that I'm telling. So although you haven't got the whole text of that passage from John... Even the fragmentary bits of the text give evidence that that is the text as it was back as early as the fragment for the way in which they interlock with one another. Well, here's a hot off the press. This isn't being published yet, so maybe take this with a grain of salt, but it's an interesting report. New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace in February 2012 Uh, reports that seven New Testament papyri have recently been discovered, six of them probably from the second century and one of them probably from the first century. These fragments will be published in about a year, so wait for February 2013 or so. These manuscripts now increase our holdings. As many as 18 New Testament manuscripts from the second century and one from the first Although about 33% of all New Testament verses are found in these manuscripts, 
The first interesting thing is that the first century fragment was dated by one of the world's leading paleographers. That's people who date texts from the type of writing that's used on them. And he said he was certain it was from the first century. If this is true, and you have to wait for these things to bear out through the peer review process, of course, but if this is true, it would be the oldest fragment of the New Testament known to exist. Not only this, but the first century fragment is from Mark's Gospel. Here's another chart, hooray, Um, gap between the originals and the copies. We had the gap between the event and the autograph. This is now the original autographs and our copies compared to other ancient works. And again, I'm not stacking the deck here. I'm comparing to the next best that's available. So Virgil's works come to us through about, well, what would be that, about 300 years after the original, we get copies of Virgil, complete. And here you see the New Testament's just a little bit before that, and the fragments, of course, predate that as well. Um, but Virgil is the next best comparison, and you see Homer is a 500-year gap before you get copies. And Caesar's Gallic Wars, nearly a thousand, Tacitus's history, a thousand-year gap before you get copies, manuscripts. Aristotle's works, nearly, nearly um, 1,500 years before you get manuscript copies of it. And yet, scholars think that you can accurately reconstruct what the original text said in the large majority of cases on the basis of these manuscript copies. Indeed, Craig Evans points out that there was a recent study of ancient libraries and archives. And George Houston found that manuscripts were in use in the ancient world anywhere from 150 to 500 years before being discarded, because they were so expensive, as we were mentioning earlier, so valuable. It appears that Christians used their manuscripts just as long. For example, the 4th century Codex Vaticanus that we mentioned was re-inked in the 10th century to extend its life by inking over the original letters so they keep the book sort of refreshed. Many other biblical codices show signs of re-inking, correcting, or annotations hundreds of years after they were produced. So if the first century originals of the Gospels continued in use for 150 years or more, and would seem to be the sort of standard practice, they would have, those originals would still have been in circulation when the oldest copies of the Gospels that we possess today were copied. So things like the John Rylands fragment, in all probability, it's not a copy of a copy of a copy of It's a copy of the original, probably. Uh, Very interesting, I think. Finally, link number four between the autograph and the text that we can reconstruct. Why is it that even with those texts where you have, say, a thousand years before you get copies of the original manuscript... And that's a much bigger gap than we get for the New Testament. Do scholars generally think you can reconstruct what the original said accurately? Well, part of this is to do with how many ancient manuscripts you have. Part of it's to do with over what geographical spread of area you get them and so on. How many different languages do you get it in to make comparisons between them? But here's how many ancient manuscripts we have. So uh, Caesar gets highlighted here, I think, because that's a sort of average. We've got ten different manuscript copies. Uh, 
Homer's works, which in this case are the next closest to the New Testament here, when you come to Homer, we get 643 manuscript copies. When it comes to the New Testament, we get 24,633. It's quite a big jump. Let's just restrict it to the Greek language copies. There are 5,700-ish. The next closest, Homer, and all of these, Homer downwards, that's the total number of manuscript copies compared to just the Greek manuscript copies for the New Testament. Again, if you wanted to chuck out the other ancient texts, would have to go. If you wanted to chuck out the New Testament by saying, oh, we haven't got enough copies in order to allow us to make good comparisons between them to work out what the original most likely said. There is nothing from the ancient world that even comes close in terms of manuscript support, say Geisler and Turek, to the New Testament. Most other ancient works survive in fewer than a dozen manuscripts, yet few historians question the historicity of the events those works describe. These 5,700 or so Greek New Testament manuscripts may differ from one another if you count any difference between them, however small. They might differ from one another in as many as 400,000 places. And there are only 138,000 or so words in the New Testament in the first place. Now, at first glance, and that's the sort of data Bart Ehrman will quote, and say, look, there's only 138,000 or so words in the New Testament. You look at all these manuscript copies we've got of it, and there are as many as 400,000 differences between them. Think, oh, grief, how do, we, how do we know which one's right? Well, actually, the fact that we've got so many different differences is because we have so many different manuscripts, which is an indication that we've got so much data, so much evidence to draw upon to help us reconstruct the text. This is actually a good sign, not a bad sign. Most of those 400,000 variations stem from differences in spelling or word order that doesn't make any grammatical difference when you translate it into English or the relationships between nouns and definite articles. And these variants are easily recognisable and in most cases virtually unnoticeable in translation. Um, More than 99% of those 400,000 variations in the, in the surviving manuscripts fall into the category of virtually unnoticeable variants. And of the remaining 1% or so of variant readings, only a few have any significance at all for interpreting the biblical text. And none of the differences affects any central element of the Christian faith. And it's actually the very fact that you've got so much data that allows you to more accurately reconstruct the text than you can with texts where you've got fewer copies to draw on to help your reconstruction, and therefore fewer variants. As Mark Roberts explains, the abundance of manuscripts 
And the antiquity of the manuscripts, when run through the mill of textual critical methodology, allows us to know with a very high level level of probability what the evangelists and other New Testament authors wrote. We can have confidence that the critical Greek texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John represent to a very high degree of probability, and I've seen statistics like 98, 99% probability, uh, what the autographs of the Gospels actually contained. As noted New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it, there's better evidence for the New Testament than for any other ancient book. The New Testament we've got printed in our Bibles does indeed go back to what the very early Christians wrote. Um, So don't be put off by people saying, oh, there are so many differences. It's like um, geneticists trying to reconstruct genetic phylogies, family trees and so on. Um, Because you've got so many manuscripts, because they come in different languages from different geographical areas at different time periods, you've got so much data to compare. You can say, does this early copy in Greek reflect the same data that's in this uh, later copy in um, Coptic? And does, is there a difference between this early Greek manuscript and this later Greek manuscript? Has there been corruption over the copying process? Or do they say pretty much done the same thing? And the same thing as the Coptic translation tradition says. Um, or the Latin translation tradition says and if it's radiating out from Jerusalem around the world and you get it, you know, here's in Rome and you get Latin and here's in Egypt and you get Coptic and so on and you get independent translation traditions, independent copying traditions that you're then able to cross compare with each other and at different stages of history all of that data can go into giving you a very accurate reconstruction of the text Whereas a text where you've only got half a dozen different copies from a thousand years later in one language, much harder to reconstruct the text. Let me end with a a good point from R.T. France. He says that at the level of their literary and historical character, those are the two sections of that chain of testimony we looked at, we've got good reason to treat the Gospels seriously just in terms of ancient historiography. Many ancient historians would count themselves fortunate to have four such responsible accounts written within a generation of the events and preserved in such a wealth of manuscript evidence. Beyond that point, the decision as to how far scholars willing to accept the record they offer is likely to be influenced more by his openness to a supernaturalist worldview than by strictly historical considerations. It's when you get to the point of saying, well, I know the gospel says Jesus did a miracle, but of course that can't have happened because miracles are impossible, because there isn't a God who can work them, because naturalism's true. So it must be inaccurate. That's not following the historical evidence where it points, that's following your worldview presupposition where it points. Um, And so it's really good to be able to put forward the historical 
evidence for the reliability of the Gospels. But there comes a point where broader philosophical issues of, well, do you believe there's a God who could work miracles if he wanted to? Very key issue. Come into play. Um, and you have to watch out in reading scholars. Well, where, where are they coming from? What assumptions are they bringing to the table here? Are they saying that this text is unreliable on historical grounds or on worldview grounds? Uh, this morning, at least, we've seen that on purely historical grounds, um, if you want to chuck out the New Testament, you better chuck out the rest of the ancient history department as well. We've got five minutes for questions, so let's take them. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because there does seem to be this great similarity between what's going on in in terms of evolutionary biologists trying to construct trees of relationship between animals through the surviving data that we have and to use comparisons and so on to draw a sort of family tree or doing family tree research and doing this manuscript research to work out where do these different traditions stem from? What are the similarities and differences? What does that tell us about the common ancestor of this manuscript tradition and that manuscript tradition and so on? Um, but not that I know that anyone sort of applied if there are sort of mathematical modelling techniques and so on. That would be fascinating to see if those techniques would, as they would appear given the analogy, apply through. Um, maybe that's in literature that's far too technical for my... Megan New Testament research skills. So what we have is what the early church wrote accurately, reliably. Yep. But what they wrote was their interpretation of who Jesus was. Yes. What's your response to that? Yeah. Um, Your... It's a... Great criticism you often hear, and it's this sort of postmodern, everyone has their own perspective, and you can only know your own perspective kind of thing. The problem with that, of course, is you could come, you could come back and, and make the elemental point that there's something self-contradictory about that criticism. The criticism is, presumably, you can't rely on the testimony of the New Testament because it's written by people who have their own interpretation of what was going on, their own perspective on things, and therefore you can't rely on it. But of course, you're the critic's idea that the New Testament writers have their own biased perspective and so on, to be fair, you'd have to apply that to the critic themselves and say, yes, but that's your perspective, your opinion of the New Testament writers, and since that's your perspective and opinion, that's your interpretation of what's going on in these texts. Well, then we can't, we can't trust your criticism, can we? 
if, if something is automatically suspect just because it's someone's interpretation of reality, everything is suspect. We don't know anything. Um, certainly not that you can't trust the New Testament texts because of this argument. Um, so yes, all history is our interpretation, but interpretation isn't just this sort of free-floating, true for you, not for me kind of thing. We hold one another to account in forming our interpretations by good rules of historical conduct. Uh, and we say obvious things like, well, if we're going to rely on this testimony, we'd like it to be as early as possible. Earlier, the better. Eyewitness, better than second-hand. Lots of copies to allow us to reconstruct the text more accurately, better than only a few copies, and so on. Uh, and when you apply the tests fairly, then the results speak for themselves. And you can't, get, you can't do an end run around that by just saying, oh, well, that's just their perspective. Well, yeah, it's their perspective. But is their perspective accurately informed... Were they in a good position to know what they were talking about? Do they give good historical signs that they were being honest in reporting it on? Did they seem like a bunch of people who just made up this story in order to get rich quick and stuck with the story when they were being thrown to lions because they liked that kind of thing? That doesn't you know, play well as a historical explanation for the texts. Um, so don't let people do a postmodern end run um, that actually undermines all historical claims, all knowledge claims, um, you've got to keep hold them to, well, actually, you know, and, and you'll probably find they're only, they're only that hyper-sceptical about this particular issue. They, they, won't look at the, they won't look at the instructions on their medicine from their doctor and say, well, that's just the pharmacist's interpretation of how you should use this medicine. I'll just use it however I like because, you know, there's... there's all we have is our own perspectives on things, isn't it? So I'll just take three dozen of them and be fine. Nobody, nobody does that. You shouldn't do that with medicine and you shouldn't do that with history. We have one last question from Chris. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a comment, uh, well, an observation, mm. comment, for you to comment on. Um, and it follows, I think, from what Peter was asking. Uh, is it. The observation is that we could sit here and. and come away from the session. We, and we all were very impressed, you know, and I've been to sessions like this before, in fact, two years ago, and other ones, mm. and we could get a bit hot under the collar. Mm. Look, there you are, there's all the evidence. You know, why don't they, these, all these colleagues and friends and whatever yeah. get it? You know? yeah. um, and maybe they miss an opportunity in our interactions with them, because there's a kind of backhanded compliment, even with Dawkins and people mm. like that, mm which is the fact that the effort is going in to diminish mm. and sort of lay down the Christian mm. record shows that the backhanded way they regard it as important. Yeah. They're not doing that with these other historical documents. Yeah. And in a sense, we can, we can affirm in that mm. and say, well, this is really great. I mean, I know yeah. you can do that as a yeah. philosopher. We can affirm it. Great. Yeah. We're actually on a bit of common ground here. This is really important. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and we have an interpretation of it, and you have an interpretation yeah. of it, but actually, the debate, and this is back to the interpretation you know, mm. thing, is that guy Jesus really there? You know, mm. And if he's there, you know, maybe he'll come and speak to you one day. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. I've, I might up. I, I think I agree, yes. Um, and I, I, I started at the beginning by saying you can have access to Jesus through religious experience. And you can have access to him through the historical record. And of course, you would want the two to match up with one another and are mutually reinforcing in that sense. Um, so the stuff that we've been looking at today is not the only way to know Jesus, but it is a way. Uh, and it is a way that the church from its inception put a great emphasis on in the early proclamation of the, of the gospel. Um, they saw these things in, again, a whole person, sort of holistic way. And as I then wanted to keen to end with this quote from R.T. France, precisely because of the thing of however much historical evidence you give to someone, if they've got a philosophical assumption or a personal attitude that is against the Christian interpretation of that historical evidence, it might not be that giving them more evidence is going to help at all. It might be you need to move the discussion whether onto more personal matters or onto, or onto broader worldview issues before you can actually make headway with looking at where the evidence points. And yeah. my point is that even if they do have that block hmm. and you agree to disagree, yeah. you can still affirm them in this oh, absolutely. thing that they think is important yeah. and you think is important. Yes. And then you're providing an opportunity to come back together that's, uh, that's right. A couple of years later or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Good. Thank you. Okay, folks. Okay, folks. Okay, folks. Um, we're going to break for coffee. Uh, thank you very much for your